Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 80, which had originally been called Gathering Clouds, but in fact we call it Inwee Dawdle because I have to tell you it's something of a meandering episode. Could I formally apologise in advance? Could I also apologise for any strange noises you might hear in the background? There is something of a gale washing around the walls of my shed. Anyway, when Edward returned in 1289, he was at the height of his power and general awesomeness. He had improved the government of Gascony, and he had achieved a position as a statesman of European renown. Throughout this period, and throughout the war with Wales, Edward's parliaments had continued, and he'd continued to legislate. Another statute of Westminster and a statute of Winchester were enacted in 1285, implementing legal reforms. The same year saw the Statute of Merchants, which implemented a method of debt recovery that helped the development of trade. In the background, the quo warranto proceedings to recover royal rights went on unabated. All these legal reforms have given Edward a high reputation as a legal reformer, so much so that the historian Jenks called him the English Justinian. Actually, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that Edward had much to do with a lot of the legislation. Robert Bennell is a much more likely candidate. And it is interesting to note that the legislation pretty much comes to an end with the death of Bennell in 1292. But hey, Edward was the king, he could have nixed any of this stuff, and it was his commitment to Parliament that provided the impetus and forum for all of this to happen so I figure he deserves a certain amount of credit. Edward seems not to have been very happy, though, with what he found when he arrived home from Gascony. 
Presumably, he must have been developing a sense of grumpiness while he was away, because he started laying about him pretty much as soon as he arrived home. His grump was aimed at a number of royal officials, and the problem was corruption. The main target was a chap called Thomas Wayland, the Chief Justice, and I'm going to tell you the story. Now you might say, look, too much detail already, but I think not. It seems to me to be a rather nice little case study of how power and patronage worked. So, here is our first meander, the episode's first Oxbow Lake, if you like. Thomas Wayland was the third child of a minor landholder, and royal administration and the law had proved his route to power and influence. He had been the Chief Justice since 1278, and it's reasonably clear that he was an effective one. But not above making sure that some of the profits of justice reached his own personal treasury as well as the king's. Wayland had something of a power struggle going on with the Earl of Norfolk. So, when in 1289 two of his servants killed one of Norfolk's servants at a drunken brawl at a fair, they fled to Wayland's local manor. Now, if you're the Chief Justice, and two men turn up saying they've killed someone, I don't think it's a great leap of intuition to think you probably ought to turn them in. But to do so for Wayland would have been a defeat in the war of local and national prestige, in his struggle against Norfolk, and a failure to protect his own men. So instead, he tried to bury it. Equally for the Earl of Norfolk, though, he would hardly be a great man worthy of the name if he let his men be killed with impunity. And so he talked to the sheriff, and the result was a special inquiry. The two servants were found and hanged in September 1289. Now this was bad enough for Wayland, but there was worse. Norfolk managed to get the jury to convict Wayland as well for harbouring the criminals, and Wayland was arrested. So, in the power stakes, a pretty clear result for the Norfolk faction. However, Wayland wasn't quite finished. Under the cover of darkness, he escaped, shaved his head, and entered a monastery. It's possible it could have been left at that, but Edward had a number of judges in his sights, all of whom were accused of corruption. So it was Edward who sent his officials to starve Wayland out of sanctuary, and he was then given a choice, trial, life imprisonment or exile. Wayland chose exile. Many other judges were similarly removed from office at the same time, as Edward sought to show that he was a man for good, honest government. As it happens, though, he didn't get a vast amount of credit for this, because in the background things in the garden were not quite as rosy as they might seem. There was discord in Eden. I'll come to why in a minute, but in this particular case Edward clearly had a problem. He was once again strapped for cash. Gascony simply didn't generate the amount of money needed to keep Edward and his court in the manner they'd become accustomed to, so he'd run up debts of £110,000. So, Edward let off many of the disgraced judges with a fine, which raised a bit of money, but raised a bit of suspicion. Because there was now more than a suspicion that he'd just been playing to the gallery, he'd found a way of making himself more popular, so that Parliament would then grant him a tax. But why on earth could the conqueror of the Welsh, the most chivalric monarch, and Europe's leading statesman be unpopular in his own land? Well, there was more than one reason. The first 
lay in a degree of discontent about the hard line and masterful way they were governed. Maybe the scars from Henry's time were fading, or maybe people were beginning to miss the licence they used to have. But key groups were now beginning to chafe a bit at royal rule. London was a great example. Under Henry, London had seized back a lot of the liberties it felt it owned, specifically the right to elect its own mayor and alderman. Now, as I've mentioned before, Edward didn't like the level of licence that Londoners claimed. He didn't like it because he wanted to be able to control so valuable a centre of trade. He didn't like it because they'd been mean to mum. But mainly, I guess, it's just obvious, isn't it, that London was at once an asset and a danger. It had shown in the reign of Stephen that it could make a difference, as well as more immediately in the crucial support it had given de Montfort. And finally, to the medieval English mind, I'd have thought London looked a bit scary. A massive, reeking, heaving stew of a place, stuffed full of the great unwashed living cheek by jowl on tiny plots, which at this time in London were being divided into smaller and smaller units as we squeeze more people in. It was a dangerous beast, and it needed to be chained. So, one of Edward's first acts as king had been to enlarge the Tower of London to make sure he always had a stronghold to use against rebellious mobs. From then on, Edward's relationship with London is like a sort of example in miniature of his relationship with the kingdom as a whole, with both moles and beauty spots. By the end of Edward's reign, London had grown to 80,000 people, so way bigger than any other town in England, and the only one of European size. Its government, as we've covered before, is a council of elected aldermen, led by a mayor. Edward started his approach as he started his reign, by working within the law and through established channels, but without being restrained too much by scruples. So, in this case... This meant stuffing the council with his own alderman and making sure he had one of his own placemen in the key role of mayor. This is one Henry Le Wallace. Henry's life and times give a pretty good example of how towns provided medieval England with a more dynamic environment, gave the chance for people to move up the social ladder, albeit within the feudal structure. It also gives a bit of a chance for a peek into the economic life of town, so sadly, I feel another Oxbow Lake coming on. Wallace probably arrived in London in the 1250s, aged in his 20s, along with other members of his family. He seems to have worked in a number of lines of trade, but the trade that made his fortune was wine, and his really big break came through supplying the royal household, becoming the king's vintner. With economic success came possibilities of social advancement, best done, of course, as my grandmother knew well enough, by marrying well. The fish he hooked was called Joan. Joan was his route into old money and influence, in the form of the Basing family. You might remember that a few episodes ago we talked about the fact that while London's government might look jolly democratic, it was in fact basically an oligarchy, dominated by 16 families. Well, the Basings were one of those families. Joan's grandfather had been mayor, for example. As with many of the London elite of the time, 
and indeed not so very differently to today's rich and famous. Once he'd made his money, he started to invest in lands and estates, both inside and outside London. But inside London, he also owned a mill, and merchant ships got involved in the cloth and wool trade. He even started lending a bit of money. So, social and economic position secure, that just left politics. And in Henry, Edward could see an ally, and hence a bit of stuffing to get his man in. One of the things Wallace did for Edward was to visit his vengeance against the Montford supporters. For example, a previous mayor, Walter Harvey, was run out of town. Wallace was a hard man, there to implement Edward's desire to get a grip on London. And London at the time was subject to a wave of violence, with armed gangs called night walkers roaming the streets at night, hiring themselves out to settle local feuds between big families. Against this, Wallace took action. He put a curfew in place and instituted tougher sentences. He built a new prison to be used, and I quote, for night walkers and men caught in fornication, and presumably therefore also for men caught fornicating while walking at night, but I can't be more specific. But Wallace wasn't just an ultra-conservative fixer. There was a 19th century reformer called William Cobbett, who will come to in many years' time, no doubt. Cobbett once famously wrote, I defy you to agitate any fellow on a full stomach. And Wallace knew the implication of this very well. The problem might be violence on the street, but make sure trade flourished and the food supply was secure, and by and large, the violence would look after itself. So he put in place rules about weights and measures, for example, providing vessels of standard sizes to be used for corn, so that people could be sure they were getting a fair deal. This thing about regular weights and measures is a regular theme, actually. Measures varying throughout the country is one of the problems. Plus, often heaped measures were used, and if you think about it, this gives oodles of opportunity for uncertainty and cheating. How heaped is your measure? So, regularity of measure is critical, and it takes some time to be achieved. Wallace also instituted a pretty little practice, whereby any baker convicted of fraud was dragged through the city on a hurdle, and I'd like to bet this was no fun at all for a baker. Wallace was also part of the increasing pace of towns regulating themselves to improve living conditions. So, new water supplies were put in place, rules enforced about waste. Now, clearly I don't want to strain the parallel with Edward, but while trying to genuinely improve London for its citizens, Wallace didn't take too much notice of the strict legalities or opposition. As a result, in 1284, London's big families decided they preferred liberty and lawlessness to servitude and peace, and elected a mayor more to their liking. For his part, Edward saw no reason whatsoever why he should go along with all of this. So, if London was going to be difficult and refused to elect his own men, then they could do without the privilege at all. And he did have some pretty good excuses for taking action. Under the new man, the place was rocked by scandal, including a breakout from Newgate Prison and a notorious murder. Edward felt secure enough anyway to begin stretching his royal prerogative a little bit further. And so, 
he enclosed the site of the place where public assemblies were held so that they couldn't be held without his permission. The mayor resigned in protest, which bothered Edward not one jot, since he then followed up with the imprisonment of 80 leading citizens. A royal warden was now appointed to take the place of the elected mayor. London was now under direct royal control and would be until Edward began to lose his grip a bit more generally. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. London was not the only example of the exercise of royal authority that was causing discontent. Let's finally get to that Latin tag, quo warranto. By what warrant? The Quo Warranto Inquirers were the king's way of getting back all of those royal rights he felt had been lost during the time of Henry and de Montfort. Basically, the king's justices were wandering around the countryside, bringing local jurors together and questioning local lords on where their rights and liberties came from originally, to prove that they actually held those royal rights. So you might walk in bold as brass, confident that your family had been taxing the local town for generations. But the royal justices weren't impressed with your memory or with custom. Quo warranto, they would snarl. Where's the bit of paper from the king to prove that you've got those rights? Now this quo warranto stuff was a major irritant as far as the magnates were concerned. It certainly flew in the face of all this touchy-feely King Arthur and his knights, we're all in this together stuff. It's quite possible at the same time that the peasants actually rather liked it. So, inflation is rising. If they can use this process to confirm their customary rents and stop those local lords or magnates from raising the rents, then they could be the winners. The magnates were well aware of this. And in truth, there can be little doubt they'd been half-inching royal rights for generations. So the whole query put the wind up the magnates and they let it show. There was, to be truthful, also a fundamental point of disagreement. As far as Edward was concerned, these were royal rights, and anyone who held any of them had them from the hand of the king, so the crown could take them back. But as far as the magnates were concerned, they held many of these rights from the efforts of their own ancestors in the joint process of conquest, and they were their inalienable rights, nothing to do with the king, thanks very much. This comes together in a rather nice story. So, picture the scene. The royal justices have arrived in town and set up their table and court in the town hall. A jury has been summoned and is sitting around. In comes John of Warren for his piece. Lots of nervous shuffling, bowing, scraping. We're talking Earl of Surrey here, one of the most powerful and wealthy men in the land, one of the king's right-hand men. The royal justices, though, are impertinent. They want to know why Warren has seen fit to raise a gallows on his land and charge fines against it and raise bread prices. These are royal rights, and by what warrant does he hold them? Come on, Buzune. Come on, Big Shot. Prove it. 
For an answer, a rusty old sword comes crashing down on the table in front of them. And the scene is reenacted here for the History of England by Master Henry Crowther. Look, my lord. Here is my warrant. My ancestors came with William the Bastard and conquered their lands with the sword. And I will defend them with the sword against anyone wishing to seize them. Not bad. Were I a royal justice, I imagine my response would have been, Yep, fine. Good point. Thanks for coming, John. No more questions? Next, please. The key phrase was gladio riri, gladio tenio, gladio tenedo. I got it by the sword. I hold it by the sword. I will keep it by the sword. Basically, my ancestors won these rights and lands for themselves, and that's the way it's going to stay. In the end, the quo warranto inquirers didn't really achieve Edward's aims in terms of bringing back to the king rights which had been lost to the crown. In that sense, it founded on the rock of baronial resistance. However, they probably did serve the purpose of both establishing that these rights did indeed emanate from the king and probably at very least slowed down the process of more of those rights leaking away. Anyway, let's get back to the money and discontent then. Just in case any of you are thinking of applying for a job as a medieval monarch, remember that dictum, that the one thing we learn from history is that no one learns from history. When you take up that job, remember that for a monarch, baronial discontent plus lack of money can be a lethal situation. And in the first parliament of 1290, Edward discovered that he'd not done enough to soothe the baronial brows by sacking and fining a few of his officials. They seemed to have seen through that as just playing to the galleries. Because nothing was done at that parliament about the king's money situation. But look, once again, we're not dealing with Henry III here. We're dealing with a clever and forceful leader who knows how to get what he wants. In 1290... He knew that he had to get the opinion-forming barons on his side and he needed to throw the parliamentary dog a bone or two. He was helped in that an insurance policy came to fruition at this time, the timeless diplomatic move of using a young, nubile princess of child-rearing age to cement alliances with the most powerful men of the realm. Edward's daughter, Joan of Acre, had been promised to Gilbert de Clare in 1285, and in 1290 she was 18, and therefore ready to be married. Joan had in fact been brought up in Pontieu in France by her Spanish grandmother, so Lord knows what she thought of being dragged back to England to marry a 46-year-old ginger nut. Her subsequent history may give us a clue. So, meander number three coming up. When Gilly dies in 1295, Joan was actually still only 23 and she'd done her duty and delivered the all-important son and heir. Actually, she'd really done the job, since she'd delivered three daughters as well, so that's four in five years. You had to work hard for your daily bread in those days. Anyway, in March 1297, scandal. Now, as far as Edward was concerned, the death of Gilbert in 1295 freed up Joan for another strategic marriage, and he had his eyes set on Amadeus V of Savoy. He happily worked away at the negotiations and a betrothal document was duly signed and approved. Hurrah! I have no idea how Edward found out about the next bit, 
but let's imagine a chat between father and daughter, reenacted here for you by History of England daughter Izzy. Hey daughter, what's up? Hey daddy-o, just chillin'. Good news babes, just got you a new hub. Chap called Amadeus says you can call him Amy. Um, dad, I don't think I can marry Amy. Ah, okay, call him Amadeus. I'm sure that'd be cool too. No, I don't mean that. I can't marry him, Dad, because I'm already married. No doubt there was an explosion of fury and rage well beyond even my considerable acting skills. This is not news Edward would have taken easily. The story is that Joan had married a lowly squire called Ralph de Monthema. Not even a knight for crying out loud. But Joan was clearly a young woman of independent mind and spirit. And here's the response she was reported to have made, read for us by History of England daughter friend, Maddie. It is not ignominious or shameful for a great and powerful earl to marry a poor and weak woman. In the reverse case, it is neither reprehensible or difficult for a countess to promote a vigorous young man. Touché, Teddy Baby. Well, Teddy Baby reacted with predictable parental wrath. Ralph was thrown into a dungeon in Bristol, but Joan worked on her dad for a couple of months, and which father's heart is hard enough to deny their daughter's tears. But don't tell Izzy I said that, by the way. Either way, he was out within a couple of months, and until Joan's death in 1307 at the family caput of Clare in Suffolk, he even enjoyed the titles Earl of Hereford and Gloucester by right of his wife. And so... They all lived happily ever after. It's interesting to know that Edward was to have problems with more than one of his children. Right, onwards and back to the main narrative. So, at very least, Edward had declare on his side. In the Parliament of May 1290, the magnates thought they'd made it quite clear that the quo warranto proceedings sucked, and they wanted them stopped. This Edward would not do, and very probably he was inclined to say, do you know who you're talking to? But in the end, he made a significant concession. From now on, a piece of paper wouldn't be needed. The magnet would be off the hook if they could show they'd been exercising their rights since 1189. Now, as far as the magnates were concerned, this would be just fine. I mean, how hard would it be to browbeat a few peasants into saying the necessary at the jury? In gratitude, they agreed to the fully accepted feudal tax, a collectible on the marriage of a daughter. However, the amount that would have been gathered by this tax was so two-bit that Edward never actually bothered to collect it. No, he needed a proper tax, and that meant a full parliament, and that in turn meant that although he now had the magnates back on board, he needed the knights as well. In June, this parliament met. And in July, Edward was granted a one-fifteenth tax, the most generous tax of the entire Middle Ages that was to raise a stonking 115,000 quid, and which was also to be followed by a special tax offered by the church. Together these taxes solved Edward's money problems at a stroke, so OK, that wasn't so difficult then. But it soon became clear that in fact a deal had been done. The people who would pay the real price of this tax were the Jews. Since the previous legislation against the Jews, banning them from money lending, the tide of anti-Jewish feeling had continued to spread across Europe. Charles of Salerno, for example, once freed by Edward's good offices, had gone straight home and expelled the Jews 
from Maine and Anjou. Charles's legislation threw a number of accusations at the Jews, but the big one, as far as he was concerned, was that they tended, and I quote, to cohabit evilly with Christian maidens, a crime which I suspect is not the preserve of the Jewish community. As far as Edward was concerned, this was in modern corporate parlance a no-brainer. The Jewish community had basically been finished off already by Edward and his father. Henry had taxed them out of their wealth. Edward had taxed what was left, legislated against their traditional way of making a living, and executed 300 of them anyway. What remained was probably barely above 2,000 souls. They'd made some effort to get into other trades, but it wasn't enough to save them. On the 18th of July, the royal orders went out for all Jews to leave the kingdom by the 1st of November. If they were found in England after that date, they would be beheaded. The historical rubric on the removal of the Jews is often that it was pretty smooth and humane. And I suppose it could have been worse, but let's not pretend this is anything other than an act of enormously popular brutality. The Jews even had to pay for their own passage. And the whole thing wasn't entirely without incident. So, for example, one captain beached his ship at low tide and persuaded all the Jews to go for a walk. When they came back, the captain refused to let them back on board and was clearly having a great time since he told them to get their god to save them by parting the waters. And of course they did not so part and the captain watched as the Jews all drowned. And so for the moment, all was well once more in the kingdom. Finally, Edward could turn to his biggest priority, the crusade. And together with his magnates, Edward set a date, midsummer 1293. But we need to turn to Robbie Burns at this point. Properly read for us by Davy. But Moosey, thou art no thy lane, in proven foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft a glee, and lay as nought but grief and pain for promised joy. Because the promised joy of the Holy Land was to remain out of Edward's reach. The first blow was the news in early October that a seven-year-old girl had died en route from Norway to the Orkney Islands, possibly from eating rotten food. The second was the death on the 28th of November of the companion of Edward's heart, Eleanor of Castile. Eleanor had contracted a malarial fever in Gascony and never shaken it off. On the 20th of November, the court was forced to stop at the house of a knight in Lincolnshire at the village of Harby, and a week later she died. Eleanor didn't get a good press, but quite clearly she and Edward had an affinity and we should take his reported grief at face value. Edward retreated in December to a monastery for a month, and from there he wrote to the abbot of Cluny, referring to Eleanor, and I quote, whom in life we dearly cherished, and whom in death we cannot cease to love. The progress of the court turned into a funeral procession, all the way down to Westminster, where she was entombed at the Abbey, on the 17th of December. They left behind them a series of remarkable crosses at twelve sites to mark the places where the Queen's body had rested on the journey. Three of those crosses still survive. The rest have disappeared, but sometimes leave their mark. So, for example there was one built at Charing between Westminster and London, hence the current name Charing Cross. And so what about that seven-year-old Norwegian girl? Well, to find out more about her, and why her death was even more disastrous than the death of any seven-year-old, you'll have to wait for next week.
Actually, no, ha, you'll have to wait for longer than that because next week I'm away again all week for work. So that's not good. Then I'm away again. Uh, so the week after that is the 23rd, very close to Christmas, but never mind, I'll probably release it then. This week, again, my thanks to some donators, Alex and Samuel, very much appreciated. Christmas presents all round. And thanks, as always, to everyone who's taken part in any way, by commenting on iTunes, email, or on the website or Facebook, or indeed by listening. Good luck all, and have a great week. Deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.